Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Most of us, scientists included, see physics as an attempt to provide an objective description of the world independent of human subjectivity and consciousness. Yet, Max Planck, one of the major scientific figures of the 20th century and the founder of quantum mechanics, regarded consciousness as fundamental and matter as derivative from consciousness. So should we listen to Planck Can we plausibly see matter as derivative of consciousness? Might doing so help solve the deep puzzles facing contemporary physics and overcome the hard problem of consciousness itself? Or does this outlook, as Einstein argued, undermine the very success and objectivity of science and take us back to a world of superstition? Joining us to debate Planck and the consciousness puzzle, we have cosmologist, theoretical physicist, Laura Mersini-Houghton, groundbreaking physicist Brian Green, esteemed physics and philosophy writer Amanda Gefter, and eliminative materialist pioneer Patricia Churchland. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I now hand you over to our host for this debate, Catherine Haymans evening everybody and welcome to our debate Planck and the consciousness puzzle. My name's um, Catherine Haymans, I'm a professor of astrophysics at the University of Edinburgh and I'm also the Astronomer Royal for Scotland. I am joined by a fantastic um, panel of scientists and um, philosophers. Patricia Churchland, uh, she's professor of uh, philosophy at the University of California um, she's a pioneer of neurophilosophy, um, that's philosophy transformed by the advances of neuroscience. She brings cutting-edge empirical research to bear on the questions of mind that have been plaguing us for millennia. And her latest book, Consciousness, explores how moral systems arise um, from our physical selves in combination with environmental demands. Amanda Geffer. Now, she is a brilliant writer specialising in fundamental physics, cosmology, cognitive science and philosophy. Um, Her award-winning book, Trespassing on Einstein's Law, is a memoir of family bonding and cutting-edge physics. And she also hosts um, Book Lab, which is a podcast about popular science books um, with the science journalist Dan Falk. Uh, We're honoured this evening to have Brian Green with us, Professor of Physics and Mathematics, uh, world-renowned for his groundbreaking discoveries in the field of superstring theory, including the co-discovery of mirror symmetry and the discovery of spatial topology change. Now, Professor Green is known to the public through his New York Times best-selling books and numerous media appearances, including The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. 
And finally, let me introduce you to Laura Massini-Horton. Uh, she is a world-leading cosmologist and professor at the University of North Carolina. Now, her work led for the first time to a theory of the origin of our universe from the multiverse. And crucially, she showed for the first time that we can test structures before our universe existed and beyond the horizon. Now, we're going to um, start our debate um, I'm going to give each of our panelists two minutes um, to answer the question for me this evening, which is, was Planck right? Is consciousness fundamental? And I'm going to start off with Pat Churchland. Pat, uh, was Planck right? Thanks very much. Well, there are really two approaches to trying to understand the nature of the variety of conscious phenomena. And one is to devise a great, grand, exotic, very surprising theory. And that approach is usually heavy on metaphor and very shy on data. Now, the other approach is to find very specific conscious phenomena that we can address in a neurobiological context, because we think at least that uh, Things that have nervous systems also tend to have, if they are mammals at any rate, they tend to have conscious experiences. And one of the most successful, I think, has to do with understanding precisely what happens in brains when people lose consciousness, when they're given a general anesthetic such as propofol, exactly what happens to very specific cells and what happens when the propofol is reduced and the person slowly regains consciousness. And we can see that, that what happens in a monkey when we do the recording right on the cells themselves is very consistent with what we discover happens in humans when they undergo these changes. Now, this looks like a brain phenomenon. Um, and I'm quite happy to have it shown to me uh, that, you know, something else is going on. But this particular instance, along with certain others having to do with uh, deep sleep, for example, suggests that it's a neuronal business at the moment. Um, Amanda Gifter, was Planck right? Is consciousness fundamental? So, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's amazing to be among these brilliant people. Um, so I, I would say, no, I don't think consciousness is fundamental, um, but I don't think matter is fundamental either. And so throughout history, we've sort of bounced between these two extremes, like either everything is mind or everything is matter. And I think quantum mechanics actually can help us sort of break the stalemate. The deepest thing that I have learned about quantum mechanics, and this really comes from Niels Bohr, is that quantum, in quantum mechanics, subject and object are sort of profoundly coupled. They're sort of stuck together. They define each other in this kind of contextual way through interaction. And in a sense, this really changes the whole game because if subject and object are coupled, then we have to rethink what we mean by the world and also what we mean by the observer. And so on the side of the world, we've sort of been forced to give up this classical notion that there's just like a ready-made world that's sitting there with definite features that just are some particular way that can be described from a kind of third person God's eye view. Um, and I think that lesson people sort of working in foundations of quantum mechanics have taken to heart, but I think what we still haven't quite come to grips with yet is what that means for our notion of the observer too. So this kind of old school Cartesian view of the observer as this 
passive spectator who lives in our heads and represents the world without interfering in it, without interacting with it, just isn't quite going to work in this picture. So I think the very idea of consciousness, even if we just think of it as a function of the brain, if we really think of it as being separated from our dynamic bodily engagement with the world, then it sort of is just this carryover from this Newtonian way of thinking where the world out there already is some particular way. And now the mind in here has to model it or contemplate it from afar. And those things are functionally decoupled. Um, I think if subject object coupling is really at the heart of reality, then that idea has to be rethought. So I don't think consciousness is fundamental because I don't think the idea of consciousness totally makes sense in a quantum mechanical universe in the same way that the classical view of matter doesn't quite make sense in a quantum mechanical universe. Thank you, Amanda. Um, Brian Green, was Planck right? Is consciousness fundamental? I don't know. <laughs> now maybe I'll take it a little bit, a little bit beyond that. Um, no, but I think that really is the answer. I don't think we know. And I, I mean that in a, not a flippant sense. I mean, in a kind of profound sense. I mean, Pat can speak to this with far greater authority than I can, but I don't think there's anybody on the planet who knows what consciousness is at some deep fundamental level. And I can speak with authority on my own part to say that when it comes to quantum mechanics, there are deep, unsolved qualities of quantum mechanics, which is shocking. We've been using this theory since the 1920s to make the most precise predictions in all of science, to manipulate matter with fantastic precision. It all works, but there are deep questions about what it actually tells us about the nature of the world. And so, yes, I think the, the, the full answer that we can truthfully give you today is, I don't know, we don't know. But if you have it for a sort of gut feel, my, my intuition, my intuition is that Planck was not right. My intuition as well is that Amanda's description, which reflects deep thinking of Niels Bohr, I don't think that's right either. I don't think that the issue of subject and object, which was vital to the early thinking about quantum mechanics, has a full place in our most precise understanding of reality. All I think is there's stuff. And sometimes that stuff accumulates into what we call an observer. Sometimes that stuff accumulates into what we call an object. And stuff interacts with stuff via the laws of quantum mechanics. And there's a lot about that interaction that we understand there's a lot, however, that still remains to be fully understood. Thank you, Brian. And uh, last but not least, uh, Laura Massini-Horton. Uh, what do you think? Was Planck right? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's, um, if, um, if I had to uh, take a position on uh, his statement, I would say that uh, matter being a derivative of consciousness is, does not sound correct but we don't know what consciousness is. On, on the other hand, uh, we do know uh, uh, enough about the pain to at least say with confidence that not everything that happens there and therefore gives rise to cognitive or mental processes to the mind is uh, quantum mechanical. So in, in that um, respect, I wouldn't agree with uh, uh, Amanda. I, I would... Uh, probably agree with uh, Brian. For example, neuron firings are uh, nonlinear. And then we know that quantum mechanics is linear. Perhaps neural transmission in the mind uh, as a linear process might be explainable with uh, quantum mechanics, but definitely not uh, 
not uh, neuron firings, we should uh, eventually give rise to the corrugations that uh, Amanda was talking about. So trying to find common grounds with uh, uh, Bohr's collapse of the wave function and observer and subject, or or um, or with Young's version of um, uh, quantum mechanics connection to the mind, I, I think is an oversimplified way to go. Uh, we, we definitely uh, don't know why we even need to experience the, the subjective side, which is the hard problem of uh, consciousness. We might be able to explain it at a uh, basic level the easy problem of consciousness. In, in other words, to map certain brain processes to certain mental states. But, but uh, we, we cannot explain why do we need to have the subjective experience of those mental states? And, and why do we have that, but other species, uh, some other species don't? So th there is a lot in, in that uh, thought that uh, if, if I were forced to, to take a position, I would say that consciousness is a much harder problem than any problem I've encountered in physics, in, including dark energy and the origin of the universe. Well, there you go. We are going to be discussing something that is more complex than the origin of the universe. Thank you, Laura. All right, so let's uh, broaden out this debate now. So um, historically, science has always been trying to get a sort of a third-person account of the world, but we know that quantum mechanics always brings the observer centrally into our understanding of the universe because uh, until something's been observed, it's, it's not fixed. So is consciousness what's mediating between the observer and the observed. I, I mean, it's um, it's a natural thought to have in that the mathematics of quantum mechanics paints a picture of the world that's very different from the reality that we experience. It paints a picture of the world in which, say, a particle can be in a mixture. Superposition is the technical term of being in one location and another distinct location at the same moment. And yet we never experience particles hovering in two distinct places. Whenever we look, whenever we take a measurement, we find a particle at one unique location. So naturally the thought would be, well, if the math paints a picture of the world where a particle can be in two places, and if when we measure it, we always see it in one, then it must be the act of measurement that's vital. And since a measurement needs a measurer, an observer, that suggests that the observer plays some fundamental role. But again, I would suggest that that line of thought that you can see quite clearly in the history of quantum mechanics was important for the early development, for the early struggles that some of the greatest minds on the planet were dealing with when and confronted with data and a new way of thinking about the world. But as we have gotten a more sophisticated understanding of quantum mechanics, that sharp division, object, observer, subject, you know, third party, first person accounts, that has become much less clear that that has a fundamental role at all. Because you can have a photon, a single photon, say from the microwave background radiation that bangs into a particle, and that interaction can be enough to ensure that that particle will be found at one unique location. It can disambiguate. So is a photon an observer? Is a single particle an observer? It starts to become a little bit absurd. 
and you realize that it's a much more anthropomorphic way of thinking about the theory. So that's what takes me to what I said in my earlier remarks. It's more stuff interacts with stuff. And through that interaction, there is this process by which the nebulous fuzzy world of quantum mathematics transitions into the most definite reality that we are familiar with from human experience, but I don't think that human experience is vital to that at all. I don't think that the world fundamentally changed when a humanoid species on planet Earth evolved to the point that it had conscious awareness and thereby could undertake an observation and record a result. I don't think that that was a fundamental moment in physical understanding of reality. Well, I largely agree with Brian at this point. Uh, I mean, there are lots of things that are very mysterious. And um, the idea that, that the mysteries of, of quantum mechanics, such as they are, must be the same mystery as consciousness seems to me to be, you know, rather far-fetched. I mean, there's tons of mysteries. I mean, it used to be a mystery how superlunary physics could have anything to do with sublunary physics, or as my biology teacher you in high school, this was out in the bush, used to say, how is it possible that you can get livingness itself out of dead molecules? There must be a fundamental living force. And we didn't solve that problem by having one great grand theory of the nature of life. We solved it by discovering something about proteins and discovering something about DNA and then about RNA and then about mitochondria and then about ribosomes. And then when you put all of this together, you have an account of what it is to be alive. Now, we still have many mysteries, like how did bacteria and RK get together in such a way as to produce eukaryotes. And biologists call this a fundamental mystery. They don't think that consciousness had to intervene in order to bring bacteria and archaea together in order to solve it. So there are many, many mysteries about the nature of the brain. We have no idea, for example, when you're trying to remember something, how it comes from the cortex so that you can report it. We have no idea how you can do what I'm doing right now, and that is motor control my speech in such a way that stuff just flows. I can't, I'm not thinking about it in advance. There's no time. Here it comes. So yes, there's lots of mysteries, and that makes it all fun. But what I kind of like to do, except when I'm in the pub and it's fun to play mystery monger, but what I like to do is have a place where you can make a bit of progress as we do with anesthesia, as we do with deep sleep, as we do with epileptic seizures. And maybe that's a bit like finding out what proteins are like and what DNA is like and what mitochondria do. But there is this kind of semi-religious thing that consciousness is just the mystery of mysteries. And, um, you know, temperamentally, I'm just not in that domain. I know that some people are, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's fun, but I'm just not there. So, Laura, you describe consciousness as the, the, the biggest question. It sounds like you're definitely there, even if Pat isn't. Uh, well, I, I would say that, that she knows infinitely more than I do about the subject, but uh, my, my view on it is that um, the... So yes, it is a very hard problem. It's the uh, hardest I have come across, and um, we don't know sufficiently about it. However, this uh, 
uh, views of um, uh, materialistic or dualist or uh, uh, panpsychism um, take on, on consciousness uh, are all perhaps too simple, too naive, but as a first step, of course, they, they are um, a, a good approach at, at the moment. However, we are a long way to go until we really have anything meaningful in our understanding of uh, consciousness. So, uh, do I think it's fundamental? Not in the sense that Planck thought it is fundamental, but uh, quite likely it is because we, we experience it in the first person every day, each one of us. So there is something there, certainly. Um, I, I don't know, I can't answer the question, why does it need to be there? Why do I need to have an experience? Why, why do I need to be conscious? Probably studies of deep sleep and anesthesia can, can help with those. I, I don't know. Uh, I am not in the medical uh, sciences, but uh, I think that consciousness is, is an, a fundamental element, at least in biology, in, in the biology sense. There are many fundamental ingredients to the universe. We don't argue against uh, uh, them being fundamental or not. But that does, uh, arguing whether something is fundamental doesn't help us in, in understanding it. As I said at, at the beginning, uh, the, the easy problem of consciousness, explaining how do concepts arise or, or how does our thinking and, and so on, that probably can be solved by mapping certain brain processes, neuron processes to, to those states. But the why and the how, why do I need to be aware? Why do I need to have that subjective experience? That I, I don't think that can uh, be easily explained by, by simply having a bunch of atoms and, and uh, mapping their configuration in, into a certain mental state. So in, in that uh, aspect, I think I differ from uh, Patricia's approach. Mm -hmm. if, if we can make any progress on, on why do we need the, the, uh, the subjective experience and how does it arise, I, I think we'll be one step closer to really uh, understanding. And perhaps at that stage, the materialistic and sense-psychic views might, might get closer to each other as well. I don't know. One of the things that I think is an important result from the the work on loss of consciousness under general anesthesia, propofol, is this, that the recordings are um, are done with scalp, uh, scalp electrodes in humans, but on tissue in the case of, of the monkeys. And in the normal awake state, there's a very specific kind of pattern that we see in the electrodes. And we also know from the deep electrode recordings that there is a kind of coherence across cortex and thalamus that is important for consciousness. And when the propofol it begins to be introduced, you can see the coherence break down. And it's, um, I mean, the, the people who like the global workspace theory kind of like this because um, the coherence across cortical structures and thalamus is essential for consciousness. And it breaks down into these kind of little modules 
uh, when you have when you have propofol, and when the propofol is reduced, it reassembles and the person is conscious again and is able to respond and so forth. Now that's not you know to, that's not everything, and it doesn't answer all of your questions about you know why are you conscious at all. Although there are some very interesting answers to that. Um, but it does suggest that the organization of structures in the brain in mammals and birds is really important for when you're conscious of something and when you're not. Now, bear in mind that, of course, there are many things of which we are not conscious, even when we are up and around. Um, and and I, I gave a, an example talking, you know, we're not conscious of the processes that lead to my speech. I'm only conscious of hearing it after it comes. Um, and so one of the other projects is to try to see what are the differences in the brain between when, a process of which you are conscious and a process of which you are not conscious. It's at least better than just saying, this is so big. We'll never understand. But Pat, can I ask you a question on that then? And if this is a diversion, uh, feel free to just ignore it. So I was curious to observe that moment of loss of consciousness from propofol. You know, I had it, so I was having a procedure oh, yeah, I had a yeah, few yeah. times before. And so I'm in there sure, and sure. I said to myself, I'm going to really watch this. And I was watching yeah. it. And as I watched it, it, it didn't turn off. And they started to do the procedure. And I'm this, and I said, you got to let it go because yeah. you're going to be in a really uncomfortable and I let it go. And then, and then I was out and then I awoke in the, in, so is that, is, has anyone studied that? Yes. Yes. It has been done. And the, and the person who did this with humans, human volunteers is Emery Brown, who's at Mass General. And, and, but he did actually adopt your strategy, which is that in all of these cases, you titrate the amount of propofol very carefully so they slowly, slowly, slowly lose consciousness. And the, um, the measure for whether the person is conscious is also quite interesting. The, the auditory system is known to be the last one to bonk out. And so they would present either a click or a word, like the word might be dog. And what they found is that once the person was not responding to the click, they could still respond to the word. <laughs> and that was true in all of, the, all of the subjects. So, but then once they couldn't respond to either, these very distinctive brain signatures appear. And what, you, what basically it is, is a drop of a firing rate, but an increase in power of the uh, of the oscillations, I see. and and it's very distinctive. So I think we we, we oh, oh, certainly I'm sold Pat on the idea of of consciousness being neurological. But what about this question of you said at the start that you couldn't relate it to you didn't like the fact that it was related to sort of quantum mechanics. Amanda, can I bring you in here? What do you think about this idea of bringing introducing consciousness into physics and making that link with with quantum mechanics? Yeah, so just to be clear, I, you know, I don't think the brain is performing any kind of quantum mechanical feats. Um, I don't think consciousness comes into to quantum physics. Um, I, Niels Bohr never talked about wave function collapse. Um, so I, I don't think any of that comes in. I think what Bohr, is talking, what Bohr talked about and what I was trying to bring in 
is there's a kind of perspectivalism in quantum mechanics. So there's a kind of, you, you can no longer in quantum mechanics give a definite third person objective description the way you could in classical physics. And so, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations of quantum mechanics that try to do different things, but independent of those, we have these um, so-called no-go theorems that really show that you're tightly constrained as to how objective you can make things before you start running up against the predictions of quantum mechanics. And so, and you can't get all the way there. You can't get all the way back to a classical objective non-contextual you know description of just stuff interacting with stuff in a in a completely context independent way um and i think that's really important i don't think it means humans are anything special i don't think it means minds are anything special and in fact i think when when conversations about quantum mechanics and minds start to make everyone nervous and it seemed mystical or something. I, I think where that comes from is pairing the reality given to us by quantum mechanics with this kind of old school view of the mind that's no longer actually compatible. So if you think of the mind as something other than physical interaction in the world, if you think of the mind as a passive spectator who's looking at the moon and making the moon exist by looking at it, I mean, that sounds crazy and it is crazy. But if you realize that like, you know, what quantum mechanics tells us is that to observe something, we interact with it. And so we are physical subsystems of the universe. We physically interact in embodied ways with other subsystems of the universe. But we do all that in a, a kind of perspectival, contextual manner that you can't describe from a third person point of view. So I think it's a, it's maybe a subtle point, but I think it's deep in that it restricts what we can say about minds and observers. And what I think it, it tells us is that we have to think of minds as physical interactions, engaged bodily interaction with the world, not as passive observation. You know, people, I mean, Helmholtz thought that. And we, and, and visual psychologists and sensory psychologists have long made the point that um, there is a kind of constructive aspect that the brain provides. So that is not anything we had to learn from quantum mechanics. I mean, you know, maybe maybe some people did, but, but without a shadow of a doubt, of course, um, there is a constructive aspect to, to, to the brain. Nobody in neuroscience has thought of the brain as a passive device for a hundred years. Yeah. I mean, when you just think about the most basic physical phenomenon, biological, physiological phenomena of sight, Absolutely. right? What, what is light? Light's an electromagnetic wave oscillating a gazillion times a second with an electric field this way, magnetic field that, but we don't experience an electric and magnetic field in any way that iron filings do near a magnet. We construct, our brains construct the visual world around us. So everything is constructed by the brain in that sense. And so, so I would say that, that I, I agree with Pat on that point profoundly. So stereo is a really good example because in the case of, uh, of creatures like us with two eyes, what the brain has to do is to put together these, uh, these images in order to get the perception of three. Helmholtz knew that. 
And everybody who has studied 3D vision since Helmholtz has operated on that assumption. We actually know now something about those mechanisms in the visual cortex that do that and how to disrupt them and how to magnify them and so forth. See, the one point that I would agree with Amanda on, and maybe others can give their perspective too, is when Bohr emphasized, and others in that era as well, that a lesson that we extracted from quantum mechanics is that you need to ask questions that at least in principle have a measurable answer. When you start asking questions about reality that in principle are beyond the reach of measurement, you may find yourself getting into hot water. Those kinds of questions may be, you can ask them, your head won't explode if you ask them, but if you ask them, you may have trouble answering them and then you run into paradoxes and you bang your head against the wall and you may be wasting your time because you're focusing upon questions that are beyond the reach of any conceivable measurement or observation. So that kind of contextualization of reality, reality is that set of results and answers to the questions that have measurable implications for the world. I would agree with that level of contextualization, but I don't see that as fundamentally quantum mechanical, fundamentally neuroscientific. I just feel that that's a, a natural way of framing reality that could apply across the board. Okay, Pat, I'm going to ask you to explain to us now the, this idea of the hard problem of consciousness, because this might be one of those questions that Brian's referring to. So this was the philosopher Jamin, David uh, Chalmers came up with this idea for um, asking why do we have phenomenal experiences um, and you know, can that be answered by scientific inquiry? Do you want to take us through this, this idea of this hard problem, Pat, and what you think on it? Well, it's a little hard for me to do because, um, you know, a problem that somebody finds hard is a psychological fact about them. It's not a metaphysical fact about the world. <laughs> um, and um, Chalmers finds, uh, finds it hard to... Uh, look, go, go back to my biology teacher. He found it hard to imagine how you could get livingness itself out of dead molecules. And Chalmers finds it hard to imagine how you could get phenomenal experiences out of physical stuff. Yeah, okay, it's hard to imagine. There's a lot of things that are hard to imagine. Um, but what amazing conclusion do you want to draw from that? And what he wants to draw from that is that consciousness is a fundamental feature of the universe along, I mean, he, he would agree with Planck. And I think, well, okay, go for it then. But without data, you're just another person with an opinion. And, um, and he's been working on this now for 25 years, or at least he articulated it 25 years ago. There's been no progress on the problem. I mean, if he really thinks it's a fundamental feature of the universe, where are the experiments? Where are the data? Where are the measurements? Uh, what's the program? What's the plan? There is nothing. Uh, Panpsychists climb out of the walls every sort of 80 years <laughs> and, and say, wow, you know, everything is conscious along with cow pies and fungus. And we're all supposed to go, oh, wow, how deep is that? And I'm kind of, oh, okay, well, show me the data and I'm, I'm, I'm on board, but show but, me the but Pat, one thing, uh, let me ask you one question, though. Uh, again, you've probably had more conversation with David than I have about this, but I asked him about 
that very point, you know, that there was a time when the onset of life seemed hard in that yeah. it was difficult. And couldn't it be that just as in that case, 50, 100 years of scientific progress made that problem not go away, but kind of evaporated in terms of it seeming so completely mysterious. His response to me was when he uses the word hard, he's not using like a subjective sense that he finds it hard. He's saying this is a unique problem because the data is only first person accessible. So all the other problems of the world are third party accessible type problems. This one being fundamentally different because it's only you and I as individuals that can access our own phenomenal experience, our own conscious awareness. That's what I understand him to have meant when he said the word hard. Yeah, I think I think that he does. But I mean, look, only I have my digestion. You don't have my digestion. <laughs> Holmes doesn't have my. Oh, it's so mysterious, my digestion. Right, but but a doctor, you know, you know of the right variety, can pretty can much gain access to the data of your digestive system. Yeah, but it's well, pretty hard to. No, you can't. As in the propofol experiment I described. Say it again. I'm sorry. The, the propofol experiment that Emery Brown did is an instance where we do have an understanding of what was lost and why it was lost. We didn't have the experience itself. But that's the point. But I think that's exactly the point. No, right. but look, I can know everything there is to know about the nature of pregnancy. It won't make me pregnant. There's a different route to pregnancy. And similarly, when he says you can know everything there is to know about blue, but it won't cause you to see blue, I want to, that's just like saying I should become pregnant if I know everything there is to know about pregnancy. I mean, it's stale now. I'm sorry, but it's just stale. So, Amanda, so, yeah. do we need to change our framework then in how we think about consciousness? Should we change our framework? Um, so, so uh, perhaps thrown out uh, yeah. this, uh, the Chalmers theory. How, how should we be thinking about consciousness? Yeah, so I, I, I suspect I have a different view. Um, so, so my feeling is that we do need to change our view. Again, I think any, um, any setup where the, what we're calling the mind and what we're calling the world are sort of functionally decoupled is just problematic. And that's really, that is what gives rise to the hard problem. Um, and so... What I would say is, um, you know, we were talking about like Hemholtz earlier and sort of this constructive aspect of the brain or this predictive aspect of the brain. Um, but I would say we still have to go even beyond that because I think that as long as we think of experience and perception and mind as something that's happening in the head, separate from the world, I just, I think we, we're going to have problems. And so you know, I look to, there's, there's a whole um, field of cognitive science that goes by names like embodied cognition or inactive cognition, um, 4E, because they all happen to start with the name, with the letter E. Um, and, and these are views where consciousness is not something we have in us, like a, a vital force that's in our heads, but it's something we do. It's our active dynamic engagement with the world as living systems that are constantly trying to get a better grip on things um, in a very physical, embodied, material way. Um, and so I think that takes out a lot of this kind of mystical, 
question, the hard problem question. Um, and I think it also puts us in better alignment with the kind of reality that's afforded by quantum mechanics, which again, is not to say that quantum mechanics tells you what consciousness is, but I think it sort of tells you what it isn't. And what it isn't is like the sort of passive observer that's sitting behind the walls of the skull, you know, making inferences or constructing models or representing things that has no access to any of that. I think we are bodily engaged systems that are interacting with the world. I, I don't think anyone here is uh, advocating a metaphysical approach. And I think we all agree that you can't have consciousness without the brain. So that that's um, universal. But thinking of uh, the example that Patricia brought to you for pregnancy, that is very intimately connected to life, is the driving force. The reproduction would be one of the keys of, of making the uh, dead atoms of your biology teacher into something organic and alive. Reproduction is, is one of those key uh, selection criteria. Can you find something similar for consciousness? So I, I don't think that just saying we're a bunch of atoms and that explains everything would, would uh, really cover every, every question we have about consciousness. And, and uh, I'm not David Chalmers. I have no reason to, to defend this point of view, but I, I think he has got a point to worry about the why do we need to be conscious. Not everything in the universe. The universe is full of stuff, matter and dark matter and energy, but not every corner of the universe is beaming with consciousness. We are. So there is something, perhaps, I, I don't know, but there is something particular about the way our atoms in the brain are configured or or there is a, a necessity, there is a selection criteria that took place where being aware of self became important. So I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do agree with David that it's an important question that, that uh, we really do not understand. For example, the, the uh, other point of uh, someone who is in deep sleep or, or under anesthesia, Fine, we, we can have an EEG and, and see, scan their brain or an fMRI and really see what's happening to all the neuron firing inside their head when, when they change from being conscious to unconscious. That does not explain, for me at least, why when uh, they wake up an hour later, 12 hours later, why the architecture of, of the atomic arrangements and, and whatever neuron firings that defines their personality and their way of thinking, why hasn't that changed? Why when you wake up after anesthesia, you are still the same person? Those are really good questions, Laura, I agree. But, but really in talking about anesthesia, I, I only want to give you an example of the kind of experiments that we can do on nervous systems to begin to understand neurobiologically what's going on in the case of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, it's only a very small baby step and there's an awful lot more that needs to be done. But, but at least 
it is an experimental approach where you can get a measurable result and you can analyze data and get results that are actually quite surprising in, in very specific ways. Um, I mean, it's very specific cell types on very specific layers um, that are affected. And so um, more of the same might help us understand more about the nature of conscious experience. And in particular things, not just about the outside world, but things like hunger and thirst and motivation, sexual interest, and so on. And but those are those are things where we can actually do the experiments. I don't know what kind of experiments we can do to show that Planck was right. But Catherine, no, no, you asked. I'm not uh, saying Planck was right. It's far from from what I'm saying. But yes. No. 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 I agree. Just trying to pick your brain on on that yeah. particular. I mean, it's one of the questions I always had. Uh, why, when we wake up, we are the same person? I think there is a neurobiological answer. Um, and we know that partly because not everybody feels like they're the same person when they wake up. Um, thank you so much, everyone. It's been a fantastic uh, debate. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.